all jobs that are simply routinized jobs will eventually be taken over by low-level applications. The new world of work is about making things better and new, and the greatest work of art you're gonna have is yourself. Are you making yourself better and new so you can make things better and new? Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. I am excited for our guest today. Uh, We were talking before we got on air here about his new book, and uh, you know that we love practicality, and this book is so full of practical help and wisdom in an area that you might not think of as something that you can just turn off this podcast and go and do, but you can. And our guest today is going to help us get there. His name is Jeff DeGraff. He has been an advisor to the C-suite in like over half of the Fortune 500 companies and is a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. So both practically and research-based, he knows what he's talking about. He's simultaneously creative and pragmatic. And so that just love that combination here. That approach to making innovation happen has led his clients and colleagues to dub him the Dean of innovation. And I think by the end of this show, you're going to recognize that he deserves that title. He's written several books, including Leading Innovation, Innovation You, and The Innovation Code. And we're talking today about your newest book, The Creative Mindset, Bringing Six Creativity Skills to Everyone. Uh, And that's out this month, September 2020. Uh, Jeff DeGraff, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So excited to dive into the book, and I'm I'm brimming with uh, with that eagerness. But before we do that, got to ask you a question about leadership here, Jeff. Uh, I want to take you back to however far back you want to go, but your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. Um, well, it's a it's a funny one. I was uh, the captain of the wrestling team in high school. I was a I was an all state all American wrestler. And um, I have to say, I was probably the worst leader I could ever imagine. So, my, so here I'm put in this leadership role, and I'm absolutely terrible at uh, getting the rest of the team to really be, uh, to achieve their full potential. What I noticed about myself was I was very good with people who were committed and competent. They turned out to also be very good champion wrestlers. But I noticed that the people who needed a lot of help and a lot of more hand-holding, that was pretty bad. You know, you probably get a lot of great stories about how people really succeeded at this. I really, I stunk. And I think it really had an effect on me sort of to think through, what does it mean to be a leader? What do I need to do to get better at this? That was the beginning of my journey. I love it, Jeff. You're in good company. My earliest memory of myself as a leader is also a horrible leadership memory. I locked all my brothers and sisters in the basement to make them get the house clean like that. <laughs> my approach to getting things done. And, and so, you know, we have to start somewhere. And I appreciate that your first memory is one where that started you on a journey of, okay, that didn't go so well, but I want to <laughs> learn how. And gosh, that inquisitiveness, that curiosity, and that learning spirit take you 
all the way through your entire career, I imagine. Yeah, I think that in my own life, you know, if you're an innovator, if you if you get a third of them right, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame. And I, I think failure is incredibly instructive. And, you know, it's funny, I don't want to sound like I'm a pessimist, because I'm not. But I think I pay a lot of attention to you know, the student I didn't quite, I didn't quite connect with. I pay a lot of attention to the client. I couldn't quite get where they wanted to go because I think that just provides a lot of meaningfulness. And remember all learning, David, is developmental. If you, if you don't believe that, take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of your dog and everybody can tell at what age you stopped learning to draw, you know, speak a foreign language, play an instrument. It doesn't matter whether you're eight or 80, you're going to go through the failure cycle. And I just think the failure cycle is where we really develop our skill base so that we, you know, that we are able to succeed. Love it. So I've got a question looking at, you know, we heard in your introduction there as uh, talking about the books that you've written, you've written about innovation from a number of different angles and so forth. So why did you write this one, the, the creative mindset? Uh, let's start there. And what prompted that? How does it differ from what came before and why this book and why now? Yeah, this is basically returning to home plate. Um, what people often don't know is the whole field of studying creativity comes to us from the University of Berlin and a famous man named Max Wertheimer. And he has two students. One is Kurt Lewin, who creates positive psychology, right? That whole movement comes out. The other is Rudolf Arnheim, who gives us this term, visual thinking, design thinking. Well, I'm Rudolf Arnheim's last graduate student, right? I'm the end of that train. And what, what's interesting to me is that creativity is so fundamental to being a human. And I'm from a certain period of time in America where the democratization of creativity was a very important thing. We went to the moon, we built the net economy, we did all those kinds of things. And I very, became very concerned that this next generation wasn't given the, uh, wasn't being apprenticed and wasn't get, being given the, the appropriate tools to manifest their own sense of destiny. And so what I did was I took what I, uh, the two streams, I took what the research says and I made it simple and I made it sort of, you know, a little glib, you know, this is what this actually means, you know, so that ordinary people get it, right? Because we're talking about the democratization of innovation. And the second is, you know, being in over half of these big companies, what, what skills actually mattered? So, you know, there's a ton of books that have like, here's a million tools. And there's a ton of books that are kind of um, new agey, I guess, which I like, incidentally. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very inspirational. What I thought is I would try and simplify this and codify this in such a way that those tools could be given to everybody and they could decide which tools were the, which skills, I should say, that they needed to develop but most importantly, how to think about being a creative person, remembering how to be a creative person. So your premise is that all of us have that creativity in there somewhere, but it's finding out how to get back to it in a, in a very practical way. Yes, and people are creative in different ways. This is the other part. This is also my earlier work on innovation. I mean, some people are right-handed, some people are left-handed. Um, the issue is what, what, can you build on? So I'm not a big believer in that we develop our weaknesses. Um, I'm a big believer that we take our strengths and we turn them into something special. We're like superheroes. You know, every superhero has an amazing strength. They also have a weakness. The notion is develop your strength and find other people 
who can offset your weaknesses and work with them. And that's, you know, Lennon and McCartney or, you know, Buffett and Munger, whatever, you know, Ben and Jerry, I don't know, whatever you want to look at. So, so I also see this as something that can be done in groups. And I, and I really wanted to write a book that people who weren't trying to make a billion dollars could read. People were just trying to make a, their side hustle work or their church group work or their family work a little better or their school work a little better. That's why it's, it's one of the things that I love about the book is that it is so down to earth and practical meets you as a reader right where you are. And so everybody listening today, I, I don't recommend many things as a companion to one of our books, but if you have dove into courageous cultures and you've been working your way through it and building that leadership mentality and the culture and so forth, this is an incredibly practical way to, and a book that you really could take your whole team through and have a ton of fun as well as potentially find some, some very cool micro innovations and breakthrough ideas. So let's Jeff, let's dive into the book a little bit here and get into it. So, I mean, you've got a process and you, and you walk through it, but let's start with, Creativity in general, because I honestly, when I opened the book the first time, I'm like, all right, what do I got here? Because I don't think of myself as a creative person. I, I remember going through high school, university, my early career, jealous of creative people. Like, and when I think of creative people, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Steve Jobs or, or these, you know, inventive engineers or fine arts majors who, you know, paint and, and do music and you know, and I, I think of all of those types of folks as creative, and certainly they are, but I think you've got a, a little bit different take on it. I call it creativizing. And my, my premise here is that some of the most creative people, David, I've ever met in my life were people that I grew up with. So I grew up in a HUD house. I grew up without a lot of money, big family. There was always the neighbor lady would have something going on in the kitchen that she would turn into something. And the guy down the road invented artificial worms, you know, in his garage, you know, for fishing. And so you grew, you, I grew up around people who didn't have a lot of resources, but were very resourceful, particularly my, my mother and father, particularly my father. We'd go on vacation and, you know, there'd be something wrong with the car. We wouldn't have enough money. And my, you know, my mother would become very concerned. And through about six or seven machinations, we'd end up at home because that kind of can-do attitude. So what I mean by creativizing is taking the ordinary and adding creativity to it to make it extraordinary. So it's not this great Homeric, and I, incidentally, when I was young, I was advisor to Steve Jobs. So it's not that. That's exactly what I'm trying to get away from. What it is, is what can we do with what we have right now? You know, that famous Teddy Roosevelt saying, and, and, um, and then the book goes through at the beginning of this, well, how, what, how do creativizers think? What do you have to do to creativizing? So I'll give you a real good example. I just got off the phone with somebody in the military this morning, right, right before this, uh, this chat. One of the things he was asking me is he said, what's one of the keys to really taking people and bringing them into a creative mindset? And I said, well, you got to look for incongruities. You got to start looking for things that don't look like they fit together right? Or things that, things that are surprising. So one of the things, and this is, a, this is way bigger than, um, than the book gets into, but I think right now we're in this period of change. So on one side, for example, you're seeing that, you know, uh, the government has had, not just our government, a lot of governments have had problems with containing this COVID <laughs> thing. But at the same time, what people are missing 
is that these groups, what we sometimes call creativity clusters, are emerging where there's a university and a pharmaceutical company and 10 startups and a fintech company. And all of a sudden, organically, the amount of time it's taking to develop a new drug is maybe a third the time that it was before. And what I'm trying to get people to look at is the conventional way of thinking is that the old will assimilate the new. The old model will buy, will, will take all the new innovation stuff and bring it into it. And what I'm trying to tell, what I'm trying to tell the reader of this book is actually it's the other way around. When you do something that's really new, what'll happen is the new will overtake the old stuff. So think about people right now who have lost their jobs. Good people should never be out of work. And right now they've got a side hustle. But right now, if they think about the side hustle and they start thinking about the opportunity as a side hustle, what's gonna start emerging if they think like a creative person is they're gonna see their next job. And they're gonna see that it doesn't exist, that they're gonna have to invent it, or they're gonna have to find a way to take this situation and move it to their advantage. And what's gonna happen is there's gonna be people who feel powerless at the end of this. And there's gonna be a whole group of people that are gonna feel enlivened that this way of thinking about things is gonna take them to their, to their new career. And I, want, I just want everybody who's listening to think about, think about how many times you wandered into something and you think it's accidental or serendipitous. And think about how you started thinking about that differently and it turned into something. And that's what, so that would be one of the first things I'd ask people to do, look for incongruities. You're, uh, you know, you're making me think, I love making bread. So, you know, I've used some of the, uh, the pandemic time to, to do the sourdough thing and have had time for that in a way I haven't. So it's the yeast, it's the yeast that, you know, replicates and eventually takes over and creates the, the new thing that didn't exist before. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you get into the creative mindset, one of the things that you talk about that I think is helpful for leaders as you're, you know, we've got a lot of, um, frontline leaders, mid-level managers, senior leaders in organizations listening right now. And, and so they might be thinking about their work and say, okay, well, what does it even mean for me to be creative? Uh, you know, I've got a process I need to follow. I've got results I need to achieve. And yet, and this is one of the things that I loved about reading the book, you get into helping people look specifically for areas where opportunities where they can be creative and we may not even think of it as creativity but when you talk about spotting opportunities you talk about like unmet needs and inefficiencies and complexities and so forth what should we be looking for in our efforts to be creative something it's going to sound very simple something that doesn't work uh for you and to me every time i encounter something and i think it's just part of the way i'm wired so whether i'm in the line at the tsa or whether I'm getting gas at the gas station, or whether I'm looking at uh, how they've changed grocery stores because of COVID, I think to myself, is this really the best way to do it? And I'll give you a real example right now. For the most part, people are going back to school right now in, uh, in these quote, quote, hybrid situations, which are terribly poorly conceived. And you could have, you know, you could have figured out in, you know, in March last year or earlier in the year when this happened that these were probably not going to work. And in the end, what's going to happen is they're going to end up blaming children and students and young people for all of this. And to me, what strikes me as odd about that is everyone goes, well, there's no alternatives to this. And the challenge for that is it's not the, the answer to this was not how they answered it. It was who answered it. Because if you would have go, gone, let's say, to a university and you would have gone around 
the university who the people were not the not in charge of the university and you a startup or a small shop and said well what what, what could we do they give you answers like well there's going to be a bunch of hotel rooms that are going to be empty you know could we put pods of peace small pods so we could control that why don't our small universities our small colleges because they can't compete and we, we don't have huge endowments why don't we get into a federation with the rest of them and you teach the things east of the river and we'll teach the things west of the river and so on and so forth and if you talk to people who are naturally creativizers there would have been a hundred solutions here for these big schools but there but what happened was the people who have the set middle of the road playbook are trying that playbook in a situation that requires creativity and because they haven't exercised that muscle because they haven't had to be imaginative in that way and this is where i come back to anybody who's ever built a company from the ground up remember i built the, these uh, innovatrium labs in fact i coined the term right for these innovatrium centers the the thing the thing that you learn when you build something from the ground up is is you learn how to be uh, resourceful because you have to and so I noticed that people have ordinary jobs have not necessarily grown up with a lot of things I noticed that they have this ability and part of what I'm trying to do is codify it and keep it in front of them so what I'm doing is simply reading back to them what they've already had say remember when you when you were in this situation you did these things. You can do them now and make your life more successful. I'm not promising. I didn't, again, I didn't write this book for Steve Jobs. I write, wrote this book for, you know, for ordinary folks. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's so important right now because, you know, when you talk about the disruption that we're facing economically and, you know, whether education or, you know, delivering value to our customers in a different way, if we can't do it in the way we traditionally did, or if you've got a workforce that's now, you know, remote, still 40% or so of the you know, workforce is still primarily remote. And then you've got a bunch more that are hybrid. And so all of these are opportunities to say, hey, how can we do this better? How can we, you know, approach this differently? And the scrappiness that you're talking about, you know, that we've seen so many fun examples of that, of people, you were talking about it with regard to pharmaceuticals, but, you know, there are so many different leaders in every aspect of life that some of them doing that very well saying, all right, how can we simplify this? How can we? I'll give you a great example. There's a small city in Vermont that changed everything about uh, two months ago. So almost every city gets federal money for underserved, for making meals for underserved people. So what they did was they said, let's take this contract away from a very large conglomerate that's going to make it through this but we've got about a dozen restaurants in this small town. And we've got farmers on the outside of this small town, family farms. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna let the contract and we're gonna redirect it to these 12 restaurants. They're gonna make good food. They make much better food than the big conglomerate did. And we're gonna to go to these local farmers and say, what is it that you're growing? The restaurants are gonna buy from you and, the, and we're gonna buy from the restaurants and the restaurants gonna make X amount of these meals. And anything extra the restaurants make, people who are not underserved can buy because it's there in a situation, so it's a drive-through situation. So all of a sudden everybody's prospering in this little town simply by imagining their problem differently. Well, now the city of Newark is doing this and these big cities have kind of caught on and said, you know what, we don't have to fail. We could prosper in this situation simply by applying a little creative imagination, thinking about this differently, connecting the dots in a way that is helpful to the people of the community. 
So Jeff, I want to ask you a question that is going to, I think it's a dumb question on the surface, but I think there might be some depth to it. And you've got some expertise and experience in this arena. So, you know, you had mentioned in the introduction again, you've spent time with half of the Fortune 500 CEOs, C-suite folks. Somebody's listening to the show going, you know what, I've got a job to do. Why should I be creative? And I'm curious your perspective, both from those senior leadership's perspective, as well as just the, the reality for them. Okay, two, I would say two things. First of all, if you're not, all jobs that are simply routinized jobs will eventually be taken over by low-level applications. The new world of work is about making things better and new, and the greatest work of art you're going to have is yourself. Are you making yourself better and new so you can make things better and new, right? And that's really all creativity is. It's useful novelty. It's really all it is, your ability to make. Because it could, it could be a solution. It could be design. It could be a hard, lumpy object. It could be a, you know, it could be a new uh, aircraft. But if you think about organizations right now, innovation is not something that happens when everybody's doing well. Innovation is a down cycle phenomenon. There's a reason for it. Uh, it happens at the edges of the bell curve and innovation moves from the outside in. And the reason is at the outside of the bell curve, let's say you're in a crisis, it's not the 80-20 rule, it's the 20-80 rule. It's easier to change 20% of your organization 80% than it is 80% of your organization 20%. You know, think about somebody who's an alcoholic. You know, they don't get over that until they start losing things. And companies don't really start being imaginative until those kinds of things happen to them, which incidentally, they're happening right now. And I'd like to tell all your listeners, you know, the first $2 trillion company in the world, Apple, was trading below $5 a share in 1997. It's a company I know a lot about. I spent a lot of time there. So the notion is why? Well, risk of staying where you're at and the reward of trying something radical is reversed in a crisis. It's the opposite. So innovations don't move from the center out. They move from the outside in. And this is why in big companies, innovation typically happens in two places. It happens at the top where people are paid with options, right? And capitalism requires capitalists. So, you know, they have to figure out how to run up the share price. And there are the two ways to do it are acquisition, which is, in my view, is kind of the easy way out. Or you have to be able to build it, right? This is my, my, I have a very American point of view, which is, you know, we're going to build. We have to build. We have to build stuff. It's, our, it's in our blood. But the other place is the front line of the organization where they don't have the resources and, you know, they're, they don't have a line of sight to everything and they have to be wildly imaginative. So I think it's an issue of number one, survival, but I hope your listeners hear more than that. It's also about abundance. It's about how you get uh, more, not necessarily just more money or more freedom, more of you. The more you're creative, the more you have to put more of yourself into it. And I just think that's how people grow. People grow from these goofy hobbies that they've got, whether you're making a models in your basement or a new kind of muffin in your kitchen. I don't know. That they give people energy and they inspire people to grow. You know, at the heart of what you're saying, I think it's synonymous with leadership because leadership is all about getting people together and saying, how can we have a better tomorrow? I mean, that's like, how can we work together to make tomorrow better? That's leadership. And at the heart of that question, the way that you're talking about it is creativity. I believe that's true. Um, if you start looking at 
Well, this is, I'm going to give, let me allow you, allow me to be a professor for a moment. When I was, when I was coming up, I was always told that human beings were the only sentient beings that were creative. And of course, Chaldean crows are creative and octopi are creative and dolphins are creative. And then, you know, I was told that um, human beings were the only ones that, that had higher cognitive processes. And then uh, my, my area of expertise are coming up was what we would now call artificial intelligence. So we made machines that could do that, right? And I'm guilty of that too. So the one thing that's kind of left or the two things is one, we can have an image of something, a better tomorrow, utopian thing, and collectively we can, we can hook up to that image and build it. That is what makes us unique that the other animal kingdom apparently to at least the best of our ability can't do. They can do it at a lower level like bees and things like that. But so that's, you know, E.O. Wilson's work, right? We can read that, but for the most part, no. And then the second thing is we're the animal that knows and knows we know our consciousness that we can also be aware of our thought processes so we can adjust them. And that's what makes us so unique that we don't have to go through just the horrible experience in developing these skills. We can become reflective and actually consciously build them. And so creativity is fundamental to what it means to be human, to what it means to be a leader. I'm sold. Let's do it. So let's get creative. So how do we cultivate a creative mindset? Somebody's listening going, I hear you, Jeff. I hear what you're, you're saying. I'm, I'm in. Now, what do I do? So the, the book lays out um, basically two pieces. The first is, you know, you have to have a creative mindset and we give you these, uh, these simple things to think about, which, so for example, you know, whoever said one good idea is better than a hundred bad ideas probably uh, isn't, isn't creating very much. So there's a lot of research that says have a hundred bad ideas and you'll get seven good ideas. You know, the whole idea of diversity in groups, you know, creativity is not born by alignment. It's born by constructive conflict. You know, are you in a positive tension situation with some people who don't agree with you? Of course, this is the problem with the internet. All the people who like you are not very helpful. You know, they're, they're creating a dominant logic in you and they're sort of, you know, capturing your thinking in such a way. But I would add some other things. Pay attention to uh, your intuition. I grew up in the, uh, the era of AM radio, David. The strangest thing started to happen to me. Uh, some of your uh, listeners might know, I'm one of the people that built Domino's Pizza when I was really young. I was one of the senior executives that built the company. One of the things that would happen to me is I'd get in situations that I didn't know what I was doing and I would hear music in my head. I don't know if people, you know, you start paying attention to like, I'm hearing music. Some people have visions or some people get, you know, feel something in their body but I'd hear music, soundtrack, and then eventually I'd start listening to the soundtrack. And what I would notice is the soundtrack was actually telling me the answer to my problem. So I'm not trying to be new agey here, but I'm saying we have this whole apparatus that we often don't, uh, don't, don't listen to. I call them the muses, like the Greek goddesses that the Greeks believe would visit you. You know, Greeks believe that creativity was visited. And then in the book, the second track, as I say, there are six basic skills and there could have been 60 but I said, in my experience, there were six skills. And these are not just steps, they're skills. So the first skill is to clarify. You know, the biggest problem I have noticed by far in creative people is they get the problem wrong. You know, mm -hmm. they, 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 they have a, they, or they try and, uh, they, they scope the problem too big, they try and boil the ocean and extract gold, or they make it too small where they try and just twist the dial a little bit 
it's really hard to find the center of the problem. Some people are great at that. While you're on the clarify the problem, when you're talking about people themselves get the problem wrong, and I've seen the same thing so often with leaders who are trying to, uh, they want ideas from their team and solutions, but they get frustrated that they're not getting relevant ideas, and it's a failure to clarify the problem in the right way and to get that clarity about here's where we really need a great idea. Here's what a great idea is going to do. As you're talking about clarifying the problem, do you have any recommendations on Yeah, I do. A couple. I trained consultants at probably the most prestigious consulting firm in the world for a number of years. And the problem with really smart people is they think that they know, right? They think that the client is dumb, which is completely wrong. And, and you have to be open uh, to this. So there's a couple things to really get the problem, right? I'd say there's two real fundamental skills. And the first skill is open-ended questions. You have to ask people questions, not like, like what's wrong, but does this work for you? Why is it working? Why is it not working? That why question takes people out of a reactive mode and it puts them in a proactive mode where they have to speculate with you, right? And you're going to have to take all of these whys and you're going to have to formulate something in your mind. That's why this step in creativity takes much longer than most people want to spend on it. They say, oh, we know what the problem is. Whenever I hear them, the answer is, no, you don't. If you think you all know the problem, that's a sure indication that you don't. When you ask these questions, ask around uh, in terms of different perspectives. Ask the super creative person who's the, you know, your artistic person. Ask the engineer who's, you know, who's much more functional and scalable. Ask the person who's, you know, sort of your athlete and much more aggressive, you know, kind of your get it done. Ask your community builder, you know, your internal sage. Ask those open questions. And what will start to happen is you'll start to get information, but I want to add one other thing that I want to make sure your listeners get. All problems are works in progress. Most of the time when you start with a problem, in the end, you will end up solving a different problem. It's like pulling a thread. You'll find along the way what's really wrong. And the biggest mistake people make is they stick to the knitting. I'm going to solve the thing that I came up with at the beginning. I'm like, well, it's a really funny thing. I had a, I was in uh, Hartsfield. This is going back a couple, a few years ago. And I'm seeing a guy yelling at a monitor. And the last time somebody yelled at a monitor, there was a real disaster that was happening. So I'm very concerned something has happened on the news. So I go and stand by the monitor and I'm in Atlanta airport. And he says, I said, what's, what's happening? He said, oh my God, this is my representative. You know, he's a flip-flopper and he's a tr- turncoat. And he's a traitor. I'm like, wow, that's pretty strong words. So what happened? He's, well, he was put on this committee to study this problem that we have. He said, yeah. And he said, and he read all this report and he changed his mind. And I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking, I'm waiting for what, what went wrong. Well, he said he was for this and now he's for that. And I finally looked at him and I said, isn't that what intelligent people do? I thought the guy was going to hit me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I get it. You weren't interested in an answer. You were interested in everybody believing all the same nonsense you believe. This guy was clarifying. This guy looked into the, just making sense. He looked in, he got a different perspective and he said, ah, we got a course correct here. And that's the wonderful thing. You know, the wonderful thing about creativity, you don't have to get it right at the beginning because what you'll learn along the way, people will adjust. The biggest problem with creativity at the beginning is people get stuck in the planning cycle. You know what I mean? The meeting about the meeting, the report about mm-hmm. the report, they get stuck. And the notion is they're, they think that they just, if they gather a little more data, 
it'll be clear. No, you got to send the ships. So that first step, I think the big thing is those why questions, thinking around it, and then understanding that you're going to be making, you're going to be making some adjustments as you go along. I love the, the pulling the thread analogy and not get stuck with the knitting and, and having that flexibility to get to go where it takes you. I wanted to camp out there because I, I definitely, that's been my experience and believe that the, that clarity is so vital to, to the well, rest Well, David, of that's what the research says too. There's a couple famous studies. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but they ask a lot of university professors what the number one skill for creative people were. And they said creative problem solving. And they asked a whole bunch of uh, senior executives and they said getting the problem right. And it tells you, you a lot about sort of the difference between our domains, right? All right. So we've got the problem right. And then you were starting to go through some of the other steps. Well, the, 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 the uh, mnemonic device is create. So it makes it easy to remember C-R-E-A-T-E. So all the words start with uh, the, the, the word create. So the, the R is replicate. And this is actually a form of creativity, sometimes called uh, mimetic. And the most famous version of this is called biomimicry, where you you, you look at a peregrine falcon and you, you know, all of a sudden you create the wings of a fighter aircraft and you look at the flukes of a whale and it becomes the rudder of a submarine. The geodesic dome as you walk into Disney World is Bucky Fuller's, you know, it's a spore, right? And, and there's a number of these, which, which I think is very important because some people are very visual. Some people have to see something and then they improve upon it. It doesn't mean it's a low level of creativity. It's actually quite a sophisticated skill. A lot of artists have it, right? The second, uh, beyond that, the third step is elaborate. And elaborate is something we normally associate with creativity. It's, uh, there's a technical term for this called bisociative, and it means your brain naturally connects ideas. It assimilates and accommodates ideas. Your neural nets are, are constantly absorbing things. In fact, a lot of stuff you're not even paying attention to, right? And uh, of course, when we dream and whatever, this sort of gets rid of all the dross that we don't need. But what's interesting about that is there's a lot more to, than brainstorming. And what you're really trying to do is fool your brain. You're trying to connect an idea with another idea that doesn't usually go together. And they have a baby. They have a new idea. So whether it's a random word or whether it's brainstorming, there are some things that your brain naturally does. And this is something that happens pretty fast. So you have to be able to kind of take a higher point of view and look down and slow that, uh, that neural net, that supercomputer in your head, that you know, five pound supercomputer and make sure, and make sure that, you're, um, that you're paying attention to the connections. Um, and you've, we've all been around that person who's you know, a brainstorming genius, right? Um, the next level is associate, which is really sort of my thing. Associate is uh, often referred to as adaptive reasoning, right? Sometimes called analogical reasoning, analogs, uh, metaphors. Uh, and this is something is like something. And this is where your brain gets a little more complex. Your brain naturally looks at all these complicated things and it says, how do they go together? Sometimes it's called pattern seeking, right? And remember, these are all skills. They're not just steps. And some people have different kinds of skills. So my brain's kind of wonky that way. So I sort of have a MacGyver brain where I have to look at all the crap on the table. And then I can figure out that if I take these pieces, you know, I take a hairbrush and a a fan and a paper clip I can make a thermonuclear device on or something, right? That's if, you, if you're too young to remember MacGyver, do yourself a favor <laughs> and go check out an episode or two just for fun. Yes, yes. So the, the way my brain naturally tries to see how things go together. But the other thing your brain can do is when you make a metaphor, you see how things don't go together. So I have a real uh, well-known example. I worked on 
uh, what's now called eco-imagination, you know, the famous GE $15 billion green energy thing. And what was interesting was when we started it, people said, you know, I want, we want to come up with a metaphor. And, and uh, the group said NASCAR. Now, I've only been to one NASCAR race. And remember, metaphors and analogies are culturally defined, unless they're things like birth and death and love and things like that. Most of them have to do with your culture. I, you know, I'm not from that culture. And I had to say, tell me about NASCAR. So we got all the things in NASCAR. And then I said, well, you explain five or six things about NASCAR that are not in our solution. What would that be? So your brain works in reverse too. So not only does it see how things go together, it sees what's missing when things are together. And so you create in those areas, right? And you know who is great at this was amazing with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, you know, created wonderful metaphors. And in the early days to your listeners and your, and your people watching, you know, for those of us who were kind of early uh, people in, the, in Silicon Valley on the internet, building the internet, I want you to think about, you know, mail and home and all that stuff that we take for granted on our computer. Well, those are analogical. They're analog. And the reason we did that was before that, it was all a bunch of co code lines and drop-down menus and things that people couldn't make sense out of. So we had to make it easier for them. Well, the next level is, I think, the hardest level. That's translate. That's the T. And translate is t making a narrative, telling a story. And you know how hard that is. Watch a four-year-old or five-year-old try and tell you a story. W listen to your great aunt Judith try and tell you a dirty joke. And you'll just see how hard it is to take all of the pieces and give us some kind of a narrative arc around this. And some people are great at that. Some people start with the story and work backwards, right? We were talking about Steve Jobs. I mean, one of the things that he would do at the old Mac world is he'd hold up, you know, this phone and he'd talk about all the things he was doing on the phone. And, you know, it was, it was very personal. And then finally, evaluate. And evaluate is a funny thing because I think most people think that people are over ambitious. I think it's the opposite. My experience is a lot of times someone will come up with a winning idea and for some reason they're afraid of it and they won't pick it because they're afraid it's too big, it's bigger than I can do. And I'm not trying to give people a false sense of ambition here, David, but the one thing I do wanna encourage people is if you get all the way to the end of this and you have a winning idea, the last part is about courage. Are you willing to pick it? Are you willing, and I'm not talking about being heroic. Are you willing to say, and how many people, David, have you known in your life who said, you know, I had this idea mm. and I really thought about it. And two years later, that doggone guy down the road built it. And it's right there. And it's that restaurant or that gas station or that startup. And you go, yeah, the difference was that person, he or she had the courage to try it. And the same thing follows through, whether you're talking about a process improvement in, in your organization, a better way of serving your customer. Uh, enhancing your team's experience. I mean, there's a thousand different places to apply that. I just love that exhortation to have the courage to pick your own idea, to pick yourself and follow through on that is so important. So you got to believe in yourself before you can believe in your ideas. The first sale is always to yourself. You've a couple of times mentioned the difference between skill and step. And so totally following, and I've read the book, so I have the advantage there, but these are skills. And so, as you said, people's brains are wired in different ways. As you were going through those, if someone was resonating and say, you know, that association, that makes sense to me, or gosh, I do the mimicry thing. Yeah, that 
I, I definitely do that. As people are investing in this skill or thinking maybe that's one that resonates for them, how do you, how do you take that next step and start to cultivate that skill at a deeper level? Yeah, um, I'm a big believer in what I call so do too, see one, do one, teach one. And I think the way that I became who I became is really I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think at this point in my life, part of writing this book, I owe it to other people to help them. I think the first step of this is identifying what skills you already have, what you have a natural propensity to. Now, remember, when you read this book and you discover a skill, it doesn't mean that you've been doing it for a long time. It just means, oh, this guy's come up with a, a sort of a methodology or way of capturing this. I'm kind of naturally good at this. That's the first step. What is it that I have a natural talent for? And then the second thing would be, well, how do I get better at that? So this book gives you a lot of methods that you could get better at that. So you improve that, you do more of it. But, th but there's a couple other things about getting better at. First thing I would do is find somebody who's better than I am at it. And I'd apprentice myself. And it doesn't mean you have to physically apprentice yourself. You can watch them. You can see what they do. So for, one of the things I did in my career early on, when I was a very young man, I loved Marshall McLuhan. Now, those who are younger re readers or, or listeners are not going to know. He was probably the most famous kind of um, philosopher, popular philosopher in the 60s. And he's given us our modern definitions of innovation and all that. And I went to the University of Toronto to see him. Now, I only talked to him one time in my life, but I basically copied him. The other person I copied was Kelly Johnson, who created Skunk Works. And I did meet Kelly Johnson also one time when I was a young man. So I spent a lot of my time watching how Marshall McLuhan and Kelly Johnson built things. And I went, I kind of build like they do. What can I learn from what they're doing? But the other thing that I really took away from that was what skills don't I have that I need in order to be good? So I need to find people who have them. And I'm lucky at my age and way I am in life, I've been able to surround myself with those people, right? But then the next, the next step, I think, is identifying other tools that fit into your toolkit around your strength, and finally, and ultimately, doing what I did, which was invent tools. You know, invent the tools that are going to work for you. They're custom. So now you know this is how you think. Now you know this is what works in reality, and you will get feedback from reality. And the feedback is where we started this thing, David. The feedback is this is a great tool and you're really good at this. And the other feedback is you're not any good at this. You need, you need to find someone else here to do this. And I got to tell you, I had somebody come to see me um, yesterday. They were talking about my innovation labs and they said, you do such a great job hiring. And I said, yeah, you know how I do it? And they said, no. And I said, I don't do any of the hiring. I'm terrible at hiring, right? I, I have a person, I have some people who are great at hiring if this makes sense, because I realize I'm not. And that becomes, I think, how we develop skills. But practice, 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 practice. So I am thinking about, uh, I think any team that is wanting to define themselves as being a team that is constantly in that process of creating and um, and innovating and, you know, and it's, again, and I want to make clear, you've said it a thousand times. I want to make one more time. It's not about the blue ocean strategy. We're not talking about inventing the next thing that, that no one's ever thought of before, but as a team and as a, as a department, as a company, that you're constantly doing the micro innovations, the problem solving, the things that evolve you to where you are miles down the road 
one year from now, three years from now. And if you want to commit to that, this is a framework to help every single person on your team think in a way that's going to achieve that. And I just can't emphasize the practicality enough. I have a great homework assignment. I think one of the greatest movies and books ever on innovation is a movie called Moneyball. And it's about a team that doesn't have nearly enough money to compete. And it knows it's not going to be a bunch of home runs that wins it for them. It's putting together a diverse group of people, forming a team out of them, going through the failure cycle, which is painful. I've been through it so many times in my life. You become numb, but it's, did I, there's no way to say it's easy. It's painful. There's no one listening. I've made, I've made more mistakes than all your listeners combined. <laughs> I know how painful it is, right? I'm just, I'm not that smart. But what Moneyball does is then it figures out how to create rallies, how to create momentum, how to actually put all the small things together and start winning. And if you think about the things that we hold as these great companies, now think about the history of Amazon. Think about, you know, it's books and it doesn't really work at the beginning. And then they get into this and it doesn't work. And then they add this. There's not a lot of ta-da in the, in the way it got built. There's a lot of kind of, you know, you know, little bitty kind of things and getting momentum and trying to get to the next place. We're all schlepping. <laughs> you know, that's, we're all schlepping towards our success. And half of it's just kind of keeping on and understanding that that's the process. There is no effortless superiority. There's a tagline quote for this show. <laughs> there is no effortless superiority. I love that. Jeff, there is so much here. I'm going to encourage everybody to go get the book because obviously there's more there than we can talk about, but you've gotten 50,000 foot view to, to know that it's there. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to diving a little deeper into the chapter on the one that's resonating for me. So where can people find you? Where can they find the book? We will put all of these notes in the show notes for you so you can go find the links directly. But if Three you things, jeffdegraff.com, right? There's a whole bunch of free stuff. Uh, the world's largest innovation assessment that's free, all that's there, right? Um, two, incidentally, there will be videos. There are 15 videos that go with the books that will take you through. It's called Let's Do One Together, right? Let's, so the object is of trying to make everything very available in a democratic way. Two, I'm one of the original LinkedIn influencers, so you can jump on LinkedIn, find me, the Dean of Innovation. I'm, uh, uh, and I'm all, every week I write something and put something on there, and maybe I'll tell you kind of what I'm up to every now and then. And then finally, the book comes out, I think, September 29th, uh, 27th or 29th. Uh, Amazon, all your local bookstores, let's support our local bookstores. We need to do that right now. It's paperback, and the reason I did this, I wanted to make it affordable and available to people everywhere. Fantastic. You know, I'm just talking about innovation and, and, and creativity and all and just marveling at the world we live in when you, you know, you talked about the democratization of creativity and creativizing, but even this, this venue, this forum, and that today, everybody listening, you're getting access to Jeff DeGraff, right? Steve Jobs had access to Jeff DeGraff. The military called Jeff yesterday and you get him right now. And so Jeff, I wanna thank you for your commitment to sharing your expertise and the knowledge and all the hard earned value of all those failures that you had the guts to make with all of our listeners today. David, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And thanks for letting me talk about the creative mindset. I very much appreciate that. Uh, it's been our pleasure, our benefit. So just encourage everybody, 
get creative, tap in, remember your creativity, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.